So uh, this Advent series, Advent is a season. Every year the church sets apart a season of time around Christmas time where we remember that we're a people in waiting. We are waiting for the Messiah. And so um, we, traditionally churches have taken this time to, to, uh, to preach a series of sermons that talks about that waiting. And um, so we are, if you missed last week, what we were doing is we are preaching through the women, uh, the, 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 the stories of the women who are in the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew gives in the first chapter of his book. Uh, and the reason we're doing that is because, for a lot of reasons. One, it's, um, these are rem- remarkable stories and surprising stories in so many ways, and they're so relatable once we understand what they're saying. But these were all women who were waiting for Jesus. They're all women who displayed remarkable faith, uh, and they are all, uh, were honored by the Holy Spirit to be included in these genealogies. And so uh, today, last week, we talked about the story of Tamar, the strange story of Tamar, and showed how that story, once we got past uh, all the weirdness in it that our, our culture assigns to it, we saw how that was just a remarkable display of faith. And this week, I hope that we will see the same thing in the story, uh, the story of Rahab. So I'm going to ask you not to stand. This is another long passage. But as I read from Joshua chapter 2, let's all intently listen to the word of God. Amen. So this is Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you. Who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came in to me, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. So pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and had hid them under the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the, to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Well, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And of what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign." That you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Well, then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. 
And she said to them, go into the hills where the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. And then afterwards you may go your way. And the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather us into your house, into, into your house, you shall gather into your house, your father and mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And then if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, the blood, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on one, anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of yours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all the way along and found nothing. And then the two men returned. And they came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> this, uh, this passage is, you know, a lot of times in the history of the interpretation of, of, of the Bible and, and passages like this, they tend to get sanitized. If you read the story of uh, this story as it's recounted in, jo- um, uh, I think, Josephus, or Philo, Josephus or Philo, one of the early chroniclers of, of Israel in the history of Israel. They do theological cleanup and they say this, that Rahab was actually an innkeeper, not a prostitute. And, uh, and the, the idea is that this, you know, you just you can't possibly, she couldn't possibly be a prostitute and a hero of the story at the same time. Your mind just can't wrap around those two things together. And so theologians, scribes, as they go through the history of the church and they interpret these things, they try to clean them up. Uh, but the fact is that in the Old Testament, in the, in the Hebrew, in the New Testament, uh, Rahab is mentioned three times and every time the, word, the words are very clear. She was a prostitute. And not, not, not a high-level uh, Canaanite cult prostitute who were actually very high members of society. She was a regular prostitute. She was... A poor girl, a poor Canaanite girl who lived in the, in the bad side of Jericho, uh, and that's, that's what she was. Now, when we think about, when we think prostitute, what do, you, what do we think? There's a lot of things you might think. Our awareness of, of human trafficking has really gone way up now, so hopefully our ideas have gotten better. But maybe as we think of prostitute, we think drug addict or criminal, or trouble, or we just think sinner, or somebody that's wrecked their life. Uh, But in reality, it's much more complex than that, right? You know, not far from where we are right now, there's a neighborhood in North Tijuana. That's the, the red light district in Tijuana. And if you ever see like any, any documentaries there, there's documentaries on that area. Whenever the documentary camera comes through, the girls who are out on the street, they always hide, they hide their faces because they're not girls who are separated from their families. They're not girls who are uh, alienated from their families. In fact, they're girls who come from all over Mexico who are in, in severe poverty in their hometowns 
to make money in one of the only ways that they can and then send the money back to their families at home. They don't want their faces on, on camera because they have connections. They have family ties. They have uh, they're basically good girls who are in awful circumstances and are doing one of the only things that's available to them to do in order to survive. Now, of course, there's oppression with that. There's human trafficking that goes along with that. These girls are being taken advantage of, absolutely. But it's not, you know, in the Bible, when God, in the New Testament, we tend to think, you know, those two things, prostitute, hero of the story, they can't possibly go together. But in God's economy, they absolutely can. Rahab is remarkable in the fact that in the New Testament, there's three mentions of her. Three times she's talked about, and she's talked about always in the context of being someone with deep and remarkable faith. In, in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy, where she's listed as one of Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmothers. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, a lot of people call it the hall of faith. It's really a... a a picture of, 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 of saints who endured hardship and pain and suffering in this world because their hope was truly in something better. She's listed in that. And in James chapter 2, she's listed as this example of what real faith is really all about. So she's quite a remarkable figure when you learn about her. She's this poor Canaanite girl from the bad side of Jericho. And to make matters worse, she is now... Uh, in the midst of a, an awful situation where there are rumors of terrible war coming her way. And Rahab, the story really revolves around the story of this poor Canaanite girl who's faced with a terrible choice. Uh, and what seemed to be overwhelming trouble until two strange men showed up on her doorstep uh, and, a, and a very remarkable uh, set of events happened past that that re resulted in an unexpected salvation for her. And so on the one hand, Rahab's story is the story of remarkable faith, but even bigger than that and below the surface is the story of God's faithfulness, the story of God's amazing grace and faithfulness to this lone, poor Canaanite girl. And so let's look, let's look at the story three pieces at a time. Let's first, we'll look at Rahab's terrible choice. That's the first part, Rahab's terrible choice. Uh, I have a good friend that at one point, one time, we had, when uh, we had first become Christian, we were evangelizing all of our friends, and I had one friend who was a close friend, and, and we were evangelizing him, sharing gospel with him, and talking about it, and he was thinking about it, and praying about it, and really giving it serious thought. And then after a couple of weeks, we were finally were pressing him. We're like, so what's up? What's up? You want to come to church? And he ended up saying, this is what he thought. He was like, you know what? He goes, if, if I believe what you guys are saying is true, it means that I'm necessarily condemning all of my family and everyone that I love. <laughs> uh, even though, and so he said, I'm not down. I can't do it. I won't do it. And even though he made the wrong choice, he at least, he at least understood 
the choice that was before him. He at least correctly understood the choice. And Rahab is really faced with a similar situation. She, all she's ever known is Jericho. In the ancient Near, Near East, people didn't move around. You were born in a city-state. That's where you were landed. That's where your family was. That's where your protection was. Whatever station in life you had, that's what you had. But you were part of that city, and that's where you stayed. So she grew up in Jericho without question, and it's all she ever knew. Now, we think city, you know, we think maybe even you want to be generous for an ancient Near Eastern city. Maybe you think, you know, I don't know what you think. But Jericho, the totality of Jericho was about three city blocks. That's what the size of a city was. However, uh, the population of Jericho, the density was about the same as it was for modern city blocks. In that three-block space, there was 3,000 people who lived there, which averages out to be about 15 square feet for each person in that city. No high-rises, right? Everybody's just piled on top of everybody. Think of like a giant, like a big high school class that you've grown up with your whole life, confined in a small complex, your parents' friends, your friends' friends, your, 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 your barber, the guy who you buy the vegetables from, everybody's been the same your whole life, everything you've ever known, everyone you've ever cared about, everyone you've ever loved, everybody knows everybody, and it's a tight-knit community. And that's all that Rahab has ever known. It's her home, it's her family, it's her place, it's her city. And yet, she also knows something else. And the other thing she knows, because of her profession, and it is an inn that she's operating, that she, that she owns and she's operating, it's just the business of the inn is what it is. But at that inn, strangers come from all places and all over the, all over the curve. When travelers are coming, coming through, they come and they stay there. And because of that, she has been hearing all these stories. She's heard of this terrible giant group of nomadic raiders who were slaves in Egypt, the consummate world power at the time, and yet they were able to break out of Egypt as free people because their God had rained plagues down on Egypt. Their God had separated the waters of the Red Sea and brought them through and destroyed the Egyptian armies on top of that. Uh, she knew that they had, in, on the other side of the Jordan, defeated two strong Amorite kingdoms. Uh, and, and she knew that that same awful nomadic people group were bearing down on Jericho because God had promised to give them the land. And this is like, when you read these stories in the Old Testament, they, 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 they couch them, they put them in, in context of saying like, Nothing has ever happened like this before. No God has ever done anything like this before. Everybody had gods. The Canaanites had gods. The Amorites had gods. But nobody had ever had a God who had physically broken into history and destroyed a world's superpower, brought a people group out of safety, destroyed kings before them, and was now bringing them towards their city. That has just never happened before. And so she... She knew all she knew her whole life was Jericho. That was her whole world, her whole people. But she also knew another terrible truth. And that was that this other kingdom was crushing in upon them. And there was no way, no way they were going to win. And she was faced with this terrible choice. What do I do? 
uh, what do I choose? Everything I've ever known, what I know to be true. You know, as I counsel people, as I talk with people about the gospel, there's one recurring thing that happens over and over again as people think about religious truth, and that, that's this. Well, there's, there's a lot of recurring themes, but this is a big one. That when people approach religious truth, the question that they ask themselves is, do I agree with this? When they, when they enter into, uh, as a consumer, into the marketplace of, of, of philosophical ideas about the world and about creation, we, as Western people, have been taught since birth that the question you ask yourself as you, as you, as you look at this, as you look at these things, are, do I agree with this? Does this improve the quality of my life? And people look at religious truths, and that's the questions they ask. And people look at Christianity, and they say, do I agree with this? Do I, do I believe that this, you know, in, in my ultimate wisdom, do I agree that this is good and true and beautiful? And will this, if I adopt this belief into my life, will it improve the quality of my life now? And that's the question that people ask themselves when they're faced with making a religious choice. And that is, I always like to point out, it's always uh, uh, fun for me to point out, the, the wrong question to ask. <laughs> Why? Why is it the wrong question to ask? Let's, let's apply that to Rahab's situation right now and see if she asked that question to herself. She's in Jericho. She knows that this enormous group of nomadic raiders is heading their way that is led by a God of such absolute power and majesty that it's never been seen before on the earth, a power that has destroyed superpowers before them. And Rahab looks at that truth that she has come to realize is absolutely truth. And what if she sat down in her kitchen table and said to herself, do I agree with this? If I adopted this truth into my life, would it improve the quality of my life now? No, it would not. And so what if she said, this would not improve the quality of my life, and so therefore, I'm not going to believe it's true. What would happen? Will the Israelite armies turn around and go back from whence they came? No. I mean, the question to ask when we're confronted with religious truth, and if, if you're visiting here today, you're not a Christian, if you're thinking through these things, the question to ask yourself is, is this true? Can I verify that this is true? And see, it's not, religious ideas, are not, they're not in the matter of opinion. It's not, uh, it's, not, it's not the case where we are consumers choosing between ideas that might work better for us in life, that religious truth is concerned uh, with this. It's kingdom against kingdom. Religious truth in Christianity isn't concerned primarily with religious or moral principles that will improve the quality of your life. And if you think that, you're missing the point. This story, what this story does, the first big thing this does is it gives us remarkable clarity on what the question actually is. And that's, that's the choice. God's kingdom is bearing down upon the wicked kingdom of the world, and everybody's got to choose a side. 
There's no way around it. In the words of that great theologian, Getty Lee, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Amen? That's the choice. We live in the world. We love the world. We love the people of the world. Uh, we are in the world, but not of it. But you can only, you know, you can only have allegiance to one kingdom or the other. And that's the choice that's so tearing apart in our lives sometimes. When you're faced with that, when that choice really comes up. You know, my friend had a second chance. Uh, <laughs> we... Uh, more hardship, God brought uh, mercifully more hardship into his life, <laughs> things got worse, and we got to revisit that question again, and, and this time I was, I, was, I was able to say, you know, what you, what you believe in is ostrich theology. <laughs> you believe in sticking your head in the ground and hoping that nothing, you know, that everything just goes away. <laughs> but I, I told him, you know, when, uh, you know, when I became a Christian, I had the same choice, the same dilemma, but uh, rather than sticking my head in the ground, I thought it would be better to accept the truth for what it was and then start praying like crazy for all my friends and family and, let, and trust God to do what he was going to do. And he came. He came into faith. Uh, and that's the choice, really, that Rahab has before her. Uh, and so let's look now at the second part. Second part, Rahab's saving faith in God. Rahab's saving faith in God. Now, you don't have to be a Christian very long uh, before you realize that there's this old, this long-standing war between people in the church that say we're saved by our works and some people in the church say we're saved only by our faith. And in fact, it's a, some people will try to pit Paul, the theolo or the, the apostle Paul, against James, the brother of Jesus, against one another, because they, they, they say, because Paul says, Paul says this, listen to what Paul says in, in Galatians 2.16, Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's pretty clear, right? Well, here's what James says. James says this. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, Listen to what he says. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, some people just say, well, they just had different theologies and they are contradicting one another. Well, we, don't, we don't believe that. And some people... Uh, you know, we'll say, well, look, James is actually right. And some people will say, well, Paul's actually right. Uh, but what, the, what this is saying is, this is what he's saying. Something that's super important about the Rahab story is that James says Rahab is an example to show us how, what he means. And actually what it's saying is Rahab is the example that shows us how Paul and James are both right and how they both work together. 
And how do we figure that out? Well, all we have to do, it's, it's really pretty simple. We just have to ask ourselves, what works did Rahab do? <laughs> what part of the Ten Commandments did Rahab dutifully and publicly obey? <laughs> what part of the 612 Mosaic laws did she dutifully and publicly obey that she didn't have in order to be shown to be justified by her works? And the answer is, the first thing she did was lie. She deceived the king's men. She said, yeah, they went that away <laughs> and hid them. And the second thing she did was commit high treason against her own people. Think about it like that. All she'd ever known, everybody she loved, and we know from a theological perspective that that city was going to be turned into a parking lot either way, but from her perspective, she aided and abetted the enemy that was in her city and, 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 and was an accomplice to and aided in the destruction of and the death of everybody she'd ever known. And I don't, I've read through uh, the Pentateuch several times, taught through it. I haven't found that anywhere in the Mosaic Law, that deception and treason are um, works. But that's what she did. Not to mention the prostitution, which the story doesn't even mention as anything worthy of account, right? She, she probably didn't even know it was wrong. She probably knew it was awful, but morally, she probably didn't even know it was morally wrong, other than to know that she was being victimized. So that's not it. Listen to what she says. Let's, let's listen to her confession. She says this. She says, she's talking about, she goes, she goes look, I'm an innkeeper. I mean, people coming in here, they're telling me everything that happened. And, um, and then she says in verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, she's letting them know, uh, the whole city, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in us because of you. In other words, she's saying, everyone is terrified. Now, con contrast that with the, the first story of the spies that went into to Israel who were terrified of the Canaanites because they were so big and powerful and giant. And yet now, this time around, there's a confession of a Canaanite saying, telling the spies, we are terrified of you. But then she says this, and this is the important part. She says, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's the confession. What did she just say? She said, I was raised, we worship Shemoth, we worship Molech. We worship Rimna, we worship uh, gods of Egypt, we're gods of the Amorites. But those are all fake gods and there's only one God. There's only one God in heaven and on earth and that is the Lord your God. And I know it's true because of what he's done in history. And I am making a choice. I'm going, I'm going with you. I'm switching sides. And then... Because that's what she truly believed. And then she act, acted in accordance with what she actually believed. She didn't say, 
I believe that Yahweh is the God of heaven and earth. And by the way, here's the spies. Take them away. That would have been inconsistent, right? She's saying, I know that your God is the only true God. I know that this kingdom that I'm a part of is doomed to destruction. It is going to be flattened. And I want to be a part of your kingdom. Will you take me? And that's a big theme in this story. You know, when people talk about the Canaanite conquest, this is a part of that story. It's a part, we don't, you know, this is a story of a Canaanite saying, repenting and saying, I want to be part of your kingdom. And what does God say? No. I'll tell you what God said in a minute, but she trusted in God. She believed in God. She believed in the truth of God, the promises of God over and above the world. And she switched her allegiance. And that was the faith. Her faith was the confession, believing in God. That's Paul, justified by faith. But then that faith, being true faith, acted in accordance with what it believed. That's James. Real faith is evidenced by acting in accordance with what you actually believe. You know, I, I wrote a post a while ago, and I was like, if I, you know, if I, I say I, I believe that, you can't see it, this chair will hold me up, but I don't go sit in it. I'm not really trusting in chair, you know? Um, if I believe in gravity, but I, I hang myself over the edge of the cliff, I don't really believe in gravity. I don't believe it's going to destroy me. If I believe in gra- gravity, I'm going to stay away from the edge. Faith acts in, 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 in accordance with what it really believes in and what it really trusts. She trusted in God. She trusted in God's kingdom. She knew it was more powerful and better to be there, as frightening as that was a choice to make, as terrible. She had no idea what would happen to her when she made that request to them. But as terrifying as that was, she knew in her heart that that's what was true, and then she acted in accordance with it. And that's, that's what James, that's all that James means when he's saying it's not just faith alone, it's faith that's evidenced by, by, by actions, not works of the law, not obedience to the law, but it's, it's, it's accompanied by, by actions that are, that are in line, that correspond to what you actually believe to be true. Rahab switched her allegiance and then she started acting like a kingdom, a kingdom of God. And that is, look, that is so far away from legalism, it's not even funny. Sometimes we, in our, in our zeal to defend the gospel and to defend uh, salvation by faith alone, and people like stand back from, from thinking about faith in that way because they think, oh, we're, we're backloading the gospel with works and it's no longer free. Or you can't say anything about, uh, you know, the evidence of faith. You can't say anything about, like, what the Spirit is producing in your life. But that is actually, and I, I think, that's terrible. It robs people of assurance. It robs people of assurance to say to them that th- when you see evidence of the Spirit in, y- in your life, that's proof. That's, you can rely on that. It's like God showing you that you truly belong to Him. There's a, I read a, a theologian not so long ago, someone who should have known better. She put a post on her page that said, do whatever you want because Jesus has forgiven you from your sins. 
And I get, the, I, get, I get what she's trying to say, right? She's trying to say there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. Jesus has fully completed that salvation for you. But in her zeal to protect that, she went over, overboard. And, and what happens is, you know, it, 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 bring, it, it, it brings potential destruction into people's lives when we go too far with it. Because faith doesn't think like that. Faith doesn't say that. It may say, oh, God, save me from this awful sin I can't get out of. It may say, oh, God, I praise you that your salvation, that the blood of Christ is covering me, a miserable sinner, uh, and I want to do, I want to do your will, and I love you, and I want to do things that are pleasing to you. Oh, Lord, help me do that. But it never says, let's sin all the more so that God may be glorified. It never says, doesn't matter what we do with our body because it's only spirit. Real faith never says that. It doesn't think like that. Uh, And when we say things like that, not only does it rob people of assurance, but it potentially brings destruction into people's lives because people get desperate and they get upset in, in real struggles of life and they can give up. So, true saving faith, the whole point of that is it's so much better. It's so much better. God has saved us completely by what Jesus has done, and the Spirit is at work in our lives, and we can see that work in our lives and be all the more sure of our salvation. So last, last thing is, as remarkable an act of faith that was for Rahab to switch sides, to switch allegiances like that. The real story is underneath all of that, and that's God's remarkable faithfulness to Rahab, God's saving grace to Rahab. Uh, Sometimes in seminary, the guys would like, we'd be talking about like who they identify most with in the New Testament, you know, as you're training to be a pastor, you have all these inflated ideas about yourself. And so <laughs> some guys would be like, I'm, I really identify with Paul. I really feel like I'm a church planner and an evangelist. And I want to go out and, you know, plant all these churches where nobody's ever been. And some guys would be like, oh, I really identify with Peter because he was the, the head of all the apostles. Or some people, will, if you're like young and you're a creative type, you're like, oh, I really identify with John because he was so artistic and creative and me, the guy that I identified with more than anybody in the New Testament was the Gerasene demoniac. That's my guy. I love that guy for a lot of reasons, right? He, there he's like naked, he's cutting himself, he lives in the graveyard, he's listening to death metal, uh, he's possessed by multiple demons. There is no way this guy is getting saved. No way, no way this guy is going to be saved unless Jesus makes a detour for no reason other than to go get this guy and sails all the way across the Sea of Galilee, breaks his ministry off, leaves 10,000 people who have fallen him around, goes to the graveyard, says, hey, bro, come on. The legion leaves him, goes into the pigs, they go into the, into the water, you know the story. Uh, And this man who was insane, naked, cutting himself, is described then as clothed in his right mind and sitting with the Lord. 
And then that was me. That was me when I got saved. I've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. He'd given me my mind back. And all I wanted to do was just sit right there. I didn't want to go nowhere. And Jesus is getting in the boat, and I'm like, let's go. Let's go. Let's go to the sail across the sea to the land of the valor. And Jesus is all, nope. Go back to your people and tell them all what the Lord has done for you. And then it says, and so he went back and told them how good Jesus had been to him. It's a great little hidden passage on the deity of Christ. But listen, what's my point? My point is that there's no way that guy was getting saved unless Jesus personally came to him and delivered him. And one of the best sermons I ever heard was by Kevin Dane at New Life preaching on that passage of the the Gerasene demoniac. And he goes, you know what? He goes, we talk about election, about God choosing people. Everybody's got a big problem with it. But you know who didn't have a problem with it? He's all, that guy. (laughs) That guy. That guy did not have a problem with election. You know what? Neither did Rahab. Rahab might have heard all those stories. She might have thought a lot of things. She might have believed that the God of the Hebrews was the true God, but she would have been flattened with that city had not God sent those two spies who just happened to randomly show up at the brothel, not the place the spies are supposed to go, people. And yet there they go. And even in that chaos and sin of the human condition, when we pull back a camera, we see that that's God and his providence and in his grace going to that one lone, poor, impoverished Canaanite prostitute who'd been abused by the system and by men her entire life and saying, I pick you. I pick you. You're the princess. You're the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, and it's time for you to come home. You know, we have, we all, we're all like that. We all have a problem with election because we don't think we're that bad. <laughs> you don't think you're the prostitute. Guess what? You're the prostitute. <laughs> and the reason you're here, the reason you believe in Jesus, the reason you are a part of the royal family, the reason why you are all princesses and daughters of the king and sons of the king, is because Jesus made a special mission just to you and said, come on, come. Come on, daughter, we're coming home. Come here, son. We're done. You know, the epilogue to this story, it's really quite remarkable. You know, I talk a lot about how all great literature has its roots in the gospel story. All great literature has some theme that you can pull out of the gospel. Me and Brian were watching Wolverine yesterday, and he's telling me about the gospel themes that are inherent in Wolverine. I mean, it's everywhere, right? Like last week, I talked about like the Aragon's coronation, Lord of the Rings, and how that's pulling on our hearts because it's part of our reality. And, and this, is, this is a Cinderella story. That's what this is. An OG Cinderella story the one before it was sanitized by Disney, Cinderella was a prostitute. Amen? <sighs> Telling the truth. Sorry, kids. 
You want to know about the Little Mermaid? I'll talk to you. Talk to me after the service. Um, <laughs> listen, listen to the rest of Rahab's story. So here's the here's Matthew one's genealogy. Listen to this. Listen to this. We got time. So here's Matthew's genealogy, laying it out. Listen to the names. Okay, the names of the patriarchs. So Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We talked about that last week. And then Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. What does that tell you? Uh, we're talk about Ruth next week. Ruth next week. Um, but listen to this. This is what this tells us in Numbers. In Numbers, it's talking about the camps of, of Israel, the hierarchy of, of the, um, the society of Israel, the royal family of Israel, the princes of Israel. And it says this in Numbers. It says the standard, this is Judah getting up when the cloud and the, and the fire moved in the wilderness. Uh, all of Judah would get up and in order, according to rank and seniority, they would move out into the desert and follow the ark. And listen to what this says. It says, so the standard of the camp of Judah set out first by their companies, and over their company was Nashon, the son of Adminadab. Her grandfather was the high prince of Judah, so her son, Solomon, and her gra the grandson, Boaz, was royalty. It was like Israelite high royalty. In the family of Judah. She didn't, her, the, that's what I'm trying to say, the choice that seemed so terrible to her. To leave everything that she knew behind into this unknown. It was literally a Cinderella story. She was leaving prostitution and poverty and oppression. And, be, and then and the next thing we know, she's married into the royal family of Judah. And even that is only a picture, an earthly picture of the heavenly reality. She's, she's a princess in the royal family of God, and so are we. I think she's probably one of the most grateful women in heaven. One of the first people I want to meet when I get to heaven is Rahab. I just want to meet. I just want to meet her. I just, I can't imagine the vibe of just gratitude and love of God when you realize that what we all hold on to so desperately and what we try to, like, keep our allegiances with is death and prostitution and oppression. And then to come and to realize that God, what we really is happening in all these struggles and trials in life is God breaking our hold on that death and bringing us forth into the reality that he has for us, which is glory and power and royal dominion and an heir of Christ and the new kingdom forever and ever. That's what we're waiting for. That's the truth. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for, we thank you, Lord, that you are the God of prostitutes, the God of sinners. You are, by self-definition, the God of Jacob. Like you willingly identify yourself with the sinfulness of your people and then you rename us according to the 
the glory and the, the righteousness that you give us. Lord, we recognize that we are not righteous, but you have given us the righteousness of Christ. And by so doing, through his death and resurrection, you have brought us into your family. And so, even though we're still here on the earth, Lord, we know what our ultimate reality is, where we're heading, and who we belong to, and what, the tr what our truth is. It's not what we feel, but what you've told us and revealed about us in your perfect will, in your perfect word. So help us, Lord, to hang on to that and trust in it and believe it. Help us to love you more, Lord. Overflow our hearts with love for you and for love for Christ so that our faith will then even more begin to flow in the direction of who we truly are. Lord, we pray that you would do this for us for Jesus' sake and in his name so that we might be lights in the world. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.